Stories from the East and West. Hi, John. Hi, Leah. How much are we going to rewind the clock today? About 50 to 60 years, we're going back to the Cold War and to the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. Speaking of which, what are the first things that come to mind when you hear the words Iron Curtain? I guess uh, Churchill? Is that it? Okay, let me have another think. Uh, We have uh, totalitarianism, we have communism, and we have grey, dark scenes. Um, I don't know, how about isolation? Exactly. Today's story is about isolation. We're going to try to find out if the Iron Curtain really did isolate the West from the East, and if it was as impenetrable as we usually think it was. Sounds good. Who are the protagonists, though? It's a band even you would know, John. Oh, really? Meaning? The Rolling Stones. Ha! The Rolling Stones? What on earth do they have to do with the Iron Curtain? More than you think. My name's John. And I'm Leanne. This is Stories from the Eastern West. Today we're going to talk about a Rolling Stones concert that ended up causing a lot of trouble for communist authorities. Are you telling me that the Rolling Stones played on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain, right in the middle of the Cold War? That's precisely what I'm telling you, John. It's as if... Um, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a Japanese orchestra playing in Carnegie Hall, right slap bang in the middle of World War II. Not a bad comparison, actually. But I still can't imagine why anyone would allow the Rolling Stones, with their reputation and unpredictability, to play a gig beyond the Iron Curtain. That's what makes this such a great story. And it took a lot of research and interviews to find the answer. But in the end, it made, I want to say sense, but it's more, it it was coherent with what the Communist Party propaganda was preaching. The Rolling Stones used for communist propaganda? This is going to be good. It will. Okay, so let's set the scene with some help from Winston Churchill. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from from Moscow. Police governments... So that was Churchill on March 5th, 1946, and it was still very true 21 years later in 1967 when our story begins. 
Nothing had changed, really. East and West were still separated, not only politically, but also in other spheres, economically, socially, culturally. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Every other day I'm surprised how some people in Poland, mostly middle-aged and older, know very little about what was going on in Western popular culture between, let's say, 1945 and 1989. Like, for example, they barely even know who James Brown was. I mean, what's that all about? Exactly. That's because communist regimes believed that the West was morally decayed and they did everything possible to prevent people from coming into contact with it. For example, you literally couldn't buy Western pop music in music stores. Okay, but what exactly was wrong with it? I mean, what did James Brown or the Rolling Stones ever do to the communist regimes? Well, they represented the communist understanding of moral decay. I think individualism was especially offensive in the communist ideology, which obviously requires sacrifice for the good of the community. Meanwhile, the Rolling Stones were already famous for breaking laws. They'd already provoked riots during their shows. Just listen to this 1965 recording from Ireland. Or this one from the Netherlands in 1964. You can hear people literally going crazy, shouting, hitting one another, attacking security services, even trying to storm the stage. Wow, that does sound right out of control. Well, there was there was a world trend. There was the summer of 1967, summer of love, and uh, and the popularity of, of rock music was 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 enormous. Indeed, it was. The most infamous show was at the Olympia, the best-known concert hall in Paris, and someone set the club on fire. And the inside of the concert hall was burned down, believe it or not. Whoa, it's hard to believe music could have provoked such madness. It doesn't really happen too often these days, unfortunately. But okay, now my question is why, in the middle of all this, would the Rolling Stones want to play on the other side of the Iron Curtain? We reached out to an expert about it. Actually, we just heard him a moment ago. Uh, my name is Daniel Wyszogrodzki. I'm a music journalist and translator. And I've written a book about the Stones. Uh, it's titled Satisfaction. It had uh, five different editions in Poland. And I asked him the same question. Why did the Rolling Stones want to play on the so-called wrong side of the Iron Curtain? They wanted to come on our side of the Iron Curtain because they knew they were prohibited. They knew that the, that the records were not in the, in, the, in the circulation, in the distribution. But uh, at the same time, they were aware of the fact that the young people listened to their songs on the radio and they, and they loved it. And they loved them, the, the, the group and the songs and the hits. And uh, I think it was a kind of uh, exotic for them. It was at the time where they started to go to, to, to Morocco and uh, look for different kind of different experiences, uh, not necessarily uh, in music. But were the Stones wanting to come and stir up even more trouble? Daniel says no. I, I don't think the Rolling Stones needed any more uh, scandals in 1967. They've had enough uh, back home. And uh, it was a very difficult year for them because of the, the drug busts and, and, and a lot of bad press that they were receiving. Keith Richards, how do you think this conviction is going to affect you and your music and the Rolling Stones? Oh, I don't know, I just want to get on with it now that it's over. You know, I just get on with what I'm supposed to be doing instead of uh, worrying about this, you know. Do you think it will have any effect then? I don't know, it might get a song out of it. 
and musically they were promoting uh, theoretically they were promoting the the new album which was uh, between the buttons at the time and it wasn't a, a great achievement but uh, i think it was like a um, like conquering an unknown land i think that was the trophy they really wanted they came, they played, they went back home, and they were proud of, of the achievement because not many uh, Western musicians and acts were, were, were able to, to, to perform in the, in the Eastern Bloc. Okay, but why Warsaw? Why not Moscow, the capital of the quote-unquote evil Soviet world? It turns out that they did want to play in Moscow. Another expert told us more. Pavel Brodowski, Jazz Forum magazine editor and... Uh, Formerly bass guitar player, uh, Czesław Niemens, uh, a group called Aquarella Watercolors. Coolio. For listeners who don't know, Czesław Niemen was to Poles pretty much what the Rolling Stones are to the Brits. When we asked Pavo about the Stones in Moscow, he said this. It was a dirty move. The, the, the story is that uh, Rolling Stones were to play Moscow. And, they were denied. The, the, this, these plans were cancelled. They had an empty uh, date. So the Stones really did get booked for a Moscow gig? Correct. They had a show all set, but then the authorities rejected it. So uh, they said, well, why don't you go to Warsaw? It was uh, a, a coincidence that they performed in Warsaw. So Pagard uh, <laughs> took their chances. What was that Pagard thing he just mentioned? Opagart was god in the Polish music world at that time. It was a concert agency, but at the same time it was a state-owned monopoly. No one could play abroad without Pagart's agreement, and no one could come play in Poland without them either. Pagart was run by visionary people. Until then, uh, Pagart brought to Poland, I remember, the shadows, the animals, the hollies in in 65. They were Jerian pacemakers. But weren't the people at Pagart members of the Communist Party? The directors of Pagart had to be party people, but those people were very forward-looking, you know, they were opportunists. Perhaps Gomuka didn't realize what's, what's coming up. <laughs> the party leader back in 1967 was Władysław Gomuka, and he was very backward, unlike Pagart. He probably just didn't know who these people were or just didn't get what was going on. Okay, so that's why the Rolling Stones wanted to perform here. But why on earth did Polish communist authorities want the Rolling Stones here in the first place? Why was Pagart, an apparently progressive institution, allowed to try to take on the Stones' free date? I'm going to save that answer for later, you know what, John? Before we get to it, let's have our guests tell our listeners how it all worked out. Pavel sets the scene. It came suddenly, with, with a, like a two weeks' notice. We're not really prepared. All of a sudden, the, the word spread out around town that the songs are coming. The songs are coming, really? How do I get a ticket? You don't get a ticket. The tickets uh, disappeared in, uh, within one day, approximately. When the concert was announced during the first days of April, most people thought it was an April Fool's joke. I don't even remember how I got the ticket. As, uh, I strained my memory and I, I think it was a mother of, of a friend of mine who worked in Pagard Agency and she called me. She said, listen, would you like to go to get a ticket to Rolling Stone concert? I said, of course. 
Getting tickets was all about connections, and here's what Daniel had to say about it. Tickets were not distributed uh, among the among the real fans. There, there was some party involvement, and there were some different channels of distribution. It was all difficult. Most likely, there were scalpers selling the tickets, and you, you could you, the only way to get was to buy the ticket outside of the of the of the of the of the venue. On April 13th, the Rolling Stones landed in Warsaw to play two shows. One was in the late afternoon, and the other one was in the evening. They were immediately given a heavy police escort. Then they were transported in a police column to the hotel and then to the venue, which was the Palace of Culture and Sciences Congress Hall. And the thing is, we are arriving for the late show and this Palace of Culture is besieged. There were like uh, 30 or 40,000 people uh, trying to get to the, to take a chance and get inside and and, uh, and see the Rolling Stones. People came from uh, other um, uh, socialist countries. I remember a, a big contingent of Hungarians. The square around the palace was just packed. People were pressing, and there were cordons of militia. And, uh, and uh, each time, uh, we had to produce the ticket, and they were checking the ticket. It's right, we could move like 10 or 15 min- m- uh, meters on, and our tickets were checked again and again. The militia knew that hundreds, if not thousands, of fake tickets had been made. And uh, this fr- a friend of ours, Marian Zimiński, he got this ticket, I remember, for 200 zlotys, which was a big sum of money. And this ticket... They discovered it was a false ticket, so they tore the ticket apart and uh, they beat him with a baton, you know, over his shoulders. It was painful and they pushed him out so he could not see the Rolling Stones. The next day we saw Marian and his uh, back was all bruised, you know. Not only he, uh, he, he lost his money, He was beaten and he didn't see the stones. He was very sad and unhappy. The Congress Hall has a capacity of 2,700 and it was overflowing. People were standing in the aisles between the rows, squeezing on the balconies. You had the police pushing the crowds back, but then in the front rows, it was all high-ranking members of the Communist Party with their friends and relatives, obviously. But Pava was there. And at this moment when people heard the sound of the, of the, of the, of the guitar, the, the, the Salak and Gorsava went wild. And this roar, this level of uh, noise continued until the end of the concert. Somehow we, we heard, you know, what they were singing, but not so clearly, but nobody cared. The songs were there. It was something we never saw before. Unsurprisingly, the stones were being, how shall I put it, provocative. At one point, a fan threw a bouquet of little flowers onto the stage and Mick Jagger picked them up and started chewing them and then spitting them back out. So a little bit like Ozzy Osbourne and the bat, just with flowers. He made constant obscene gestures towards the police and the people sitting in the front row. And people in the front row were also covering their ears because the sound was so loud. The way Mick Jagger behaved, we could not even imagine, you know. He was so uh, energetic in, uh, in, his, uh, in his stage dance, like uh, a very strange 
Krizhila from the moon. <laughs> and you have to understand that that sort of behavior was really unusual for people in Poland. And that night it brought a taste of freedom that really worked up the crowd into a frenzy. And as they finished, uh, we, we left the hall and uh, it was such a contrast because the place outside of Sala Kongosova was completely silent and completely empty and the street was wet. And then, aha, something happened. And apparently, what happened? There was a riot. The police came in with, uh, with water hoses, uh, water uh, uh, tanks, you know, against the crowd. The crowd which, you know, which uh, was getting out of control. They had to dis disperse these rebellious young people. Uh, apparently beat, beat them up and some of them uh, were arrested. The official announcement on TV was... Despite Warsaw police being joined by additional units, the situation was becoming more and more tense. Couples and bros were shaking the crowd of teenagers, desperately trying to get into the concert without tickets. Police was forced to use transient to restore order. But in fact, the situation outside the hall had turned into a battle between the crowd and the police. And this was a police state where vandalism was severely punished, so almost non-existent. But on that evening, people started throwing objects, damaging cars, breaking windows and street lamps. Police had to bring out dogs, water cannons and tear gas to subdue the crowds. And they did manage to calm things down before the show ended. So the contrast between the tumultuous uh, atmosphere inside the hall and, and coming out in the, into the silence was very strange, very strange experience. An experience that stays with you for the rest of your life. Wow, the riot was over so quickly. Yeah, because people knew anything could happen to them if they were arrested. So I guess that was a sufficient incentive to calm down. But there were many stories after that concert. But it's natural. This is what happens, and it's uh, it's like a it's like a snowball effect. I mean, with the with the time uh, passing, there's more and more uh, myths and legends and, and stories surrounding that. Because there's a lot of myths that are completely uh, improbable, like uh, that they were paid with uh, two truckloads of vodka, or that they spend their salary on the stay at the hotel. They 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 fee, not the salary. There's also a story that was apparently made up by Bill Wyman, the bassist. He said that they were so moved by how the police had treated people that they spent the night driving around the city throwing records out of the car window every time they saw young people. But our investigation shows that this isn't true, and Daniel has the real story. They, they stay stuck to the hotel where they had the press conference. They went to the bar downstairs to, to drink some vodka in the evening. The day after, the Stones were escorted to the airport, and they left for Zurich in their next show. Okay, so now that we all know the story, it's time to explain. Why did the communist authorities want all this madness to happen? 
The most logical explanation is that this was an example of what's called a safety valve strategy. A safety valve strategy? How does that work? Well, the communist regimes would organize events sometimes that were meant to let people blow off some steam. So these were things like carnivals or concerts in this instance that weren't necessarily in line with communist ideology, but they did allow young people to rebel in a relatively safe way. Did that really work? Doesn't seem too clever to me. I think it did the job. And the Polish authorities were actually killing two birds with one stone's band. <sighs> nice, nice. Really, I've got to hand it to the scriptwriter at this moment. The Rolling Stones' performance was actually a great argument against any accusation of censorship because it allowed the party to say, what censorship? We just let the Rolling Stones in. But did they really capitalize on it? What about the riot? I think they did because there was no internet, no free media, and the official press didn't write a lot about the concert. The Warsaw Courier only wrote, The arrival of the British rock band, the Rolling Stones, met with great interest among Warsaw teenagers. However, the young people's curiosity, apparently influenced by a few hundred notorious rowdies, turned into relentless aggression bordering on wild vandalism. So, pretty typically, the media blamed the riots on quote-unquote hooligans, just like they did when there were protests for democracy. Hmm. Even though I get the idea of the safety valve, I still think inviting the Rolling Stones was a massive gamble, and the communists didn't really achieve what they wanted. Or did they? At first, they probably thought nothing happened. I think that at the, at the end of the day, everybody was happy, because the communists, they showed to the world that they open, that there's no censorship, uh, meanwhile, it was an exception from the rule. It, it has not become a rule. It, it's not that the, it was like an icebreaker that after the Rolling Stones we had the, uh, the, the flood of, of Western performers. But that legend kept growing, and it ended up snowballing into something much larger than just a one-night riot in Warsaw. But uh, there's always different kinds of consequences. Officially, they came, they left, and everybody at the authorities, they tried to forget it as soon as possible. Meanwhile, the, the teenagers remembered, the journalists remembered, and, uh, and the impact on the development of Polish music scene was, uh, was really very strong. All the best things in Polish music happened after 1967, so, so I think that the Rolling Stones, uh, they, they might have been a factor of, of, of opening uh, uh, the consciousness of, of, of Polish musicians. The riot was not something to, necessarily to do with the, the socialist uh, system, because it was a two-week two tour of Rolling Stones around, around Europe. And wherever they played, whether it was in Rome, in Italy, Oh, it was in Amsterdam. Uh, the riots were just everywhere. The, it was a time of youth rebellion. 1967 was actually summer of love. Uh, summer of love. This is where the youth spoke with the voice uh, loudly. They were protesting against the oppressing political system, against the Vietnam War, and they wanted to they make love, not war. There were riots, there were demonstrations in Paris, and in Poland we had our march disturbances. And Ronaldsons were a symbol of, of rebellion, of youth, of freedom, of young people uh, uh, taking control of the world. An incredible experience.
This episode of Stories from the East and West was a Wirewalker studio production for Culture.pl. Our team included Wojciech Olekszak, Adam Żuławski, John Beecham, Nitzan Reisner, Lea Berio, and our intern Catherine Alberti. A big thanks to Daniel Wyszogrodzki and Paweł Brodowski for joining us on this episode. To see the notes from this episode, just tap the show out in your podcast app or visit storiesfromtheeastandwest.com. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And remember to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find the podcast too.